into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. special bonus micro episode of pod damn america the gothic socialist podcast for the stupid children i'm uh it's me and anders today anders lee's here hey anders lee here and we are joined by heidi sloan um hey let me get this right <laughs> let me make sure i'm uh, doing my job right you are running for why don't you tell us who you, what you're running for what's this 25 <laughs> is that the district that's right. It's the um, U.S. Congress and District 25 here in Texas. Got it. Um, and that is, uh, you're in Austin, right? I live in Austin, and the district actually goes from just a little bit south of Austin in Hayes County all the way up uh, west of I-35, if you're familiar with Texas, to just outside of Fort Worth. So whoever designed that district has a very uh, interesting aesthetic sense. Um, <laughs> why does it happen to be drawn in such a way? Um, you know, I could think of some reasons. One being that the current incumbent uh, used to live in the town of Cleburne, now lives, if you can believe, just outside of the district. Um, and so has some ties to some of the interior towns. But mostly because in Austin, we catch... Um, Far East Austin and part of the campus area. Far East Austin is a historically black and brown community. And then, of course, campus. And then in Bell County, which is a um, includes part of Fort Hood. Uh, so it's a base town. They get a little bit of the base area, but not all. the rest of the district is relatively rural and very, very white. So um, I think there was some intentionality in, in drowning out some voices. Austin is divided up uh, really exceptionally well, well and effectively uh, gerrymandered area. Uh, the districts okay. in Texas are d- d- drawn by a very avant-garde, uh, you know, Picasso type of uh, uh, whoever the hell does that job. Um, yeah, they make no sense. Like a... <laughs> Yeah, they like a uh, sort of a base color palette of, of white, of off white <laughs> sometimes. Go, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, so uh, how is it? For, former Curry? East Austiner myself, I used to live in far <laughs> northeast Austin. Um, yeah, and it's that whole city. You know, it's divided by thirty-five for sure. I, before we get into this interview, I just wanted to uh, to sort of preface with why I wanted to interview you, which is that I am from Texas, and I uh, we uh, I it's you know, Super Tuesday is coming up, and all these elections are happening, and I really wish I could have gone back to Texas to you know to campus for Bernie and to work with like DSA and stuff like that, but uh, we can't because we're very busy up here, um, and we are going to Massachusetts this weekend to do something evil, uh, <laughs> to uh, work against Liz in her own state, right? Which is apparently, according to the internet, some sort of hate crime. Now um, <laughs> we're going to try to win Massachusetts, but I think that. Um, that Bernie has a real shot at winning um, Texas and that Texas itself, just with, uh, you know, the way that tides are changing and with uh, a lot of people being activated, 
is very rife for socialism and for, you know, for DSA endorsed candidates and things like that. So I wanted to have you on, Heidi, because I I think I have some listeners in Texas still uh, being from there. And I think that um, we might be able to get you some votes from this because I know that, like, not everyone who's even into politics pays attention to local races and stuff like that. Uh, so just wanted to get the word out by, uh, you know, just borrowing a little bit of your time. I think this this hopefully, you know, this will at least be interesting and be informative and uh, maybe boost your campaign. Um, so well, I appreciate that. Any way to get the word out is good with me. Cool. Well, thank you uh, for joining us. Anders, what were you about to say? Well, I was just going to ask how it's legal for the incumbent to not live in the district that they represent. It's just legal. I have no idea why that seems appropriate, especially as gerrymandering continues to be such a huge problem and it takes about five hours to drive across uh, from one corner of this district to the other. But yeah, you don't have to live in the district that you want to represent or that you do represent. And in fact, one of our neighboring districts has been gerrymandered to take the representative out of his home district. So they redrew, redrew the lines um, to exclude him. <laughs> wow. The Texas ledge is, is really a piece of work. Oh, man. That's such and a does that put, personal move. Put, yeah. Does that put you in kind of a strange position? Because you are running ostensibly in the entire district, but it kind of sounds like you're suggesting that it should be uh, divvied up differently. Certainly, I think it should be divvied up differently because I think that uh, community organizing and building grassroots infrastructure is so important uh, inside and outside of electoral campaigns. And to know your neighbor and to stand with your neighbor in uh, works that uh, are collective, that are on common ground, that's part of democracy, right? And having an elected official that actually visits, which ours does not, uh, being able to know them and see them and interact with them regularly, that is um, a, a part of accountability. For me, it, it doesn't so much put me in um, a situation that I regret in any way, because as you said, I feel like Texas is ripe for the kind of campaign that we're running right now. We get to go outside of the Austin area multiple times a week and uh, rally with voters from all corners, from all backgrounds and life experiences. And what we know is that, by and large, people are feeling the issues in the same way. They are not interested in talking about the left and the right or ideological sort of profoundities, but... Um, in talking about their own lives and what's going on with them and how the, t the top 1% is treating the whole rest of us, which this district, the MFI, is um, is around 60,000, between 60 and 70,000. Um, and so this is like a very, very working class district where folks have a lot to say when it comes to that. And whether you're here in East Austin or you're in Cleburne or Lampasas, folks are struggling to, to get by on that much, struggling to stay in their communities and provide for their families. Uh, I'm sorry, what is MFI? Uh, median family income. So okay. uh, like a household income for here in the district, um, you know, in Austin, it's the MFI, the median family income is now in the 90,000s. But mm. in the rest of the district, it's between 60 and 70,000 for most areas. Mm. 
Um, Heidi, I'm looking at your website, and uh, first of all, I think you have more of a platform laid out than certain people that are running for president, which is uh, impressive. <laughs> but <laughs> I uh, also, you know, read a little bit up on you, and it's something I think is interesting is that your background is uh, in farming, and you've taken some time to outline some plans for breaking up like big agriculture companies and stuff. Can you tell me a little bit about your uh, background and about that stuff? Sure. I would also just like to point out that getting our website and our platform translated into Spanish was not hard. Um, right. Just asking for help <laughs> was really, really easy, as it turns out. So imagine that. Uh, let us let us not hold excuses as barriers and to <laughs> reaching out to everyone. Um, as far as the farming goes, I have worked for um, almost eight years now uh, on a farm in just outside of Austin. It's a really special place because it's actually right in the heart of a permanent supportive housing community uh, for folks who have been chronically homeless in my county. Um, and so we have housing all around and in the middle of it and on the edges of it, we farm. So I get to work alongside of about a dozen folks who have come from that background who spent 10 or 20 or 30 years in shelters or living in the woods or under uh, overpasses. And we grow food. We have um, a fully diversified farm with annual vegetables and fruit and nut trees. We have honeybees and dairy goats and egg laying chickens. And I love it. It has also introduced me um, to the world of farmers rubbing shoulders with some really incredible people from across the state and across the country who are working their their butts off to feed our communities and finding it increasingly difficult um, to do so and to make a decent living. So I have uh, worked with folks who have been trying to hammer out any sort of just um, movement on the farm bill for the last few years and learned a lot in that space. I've also gotten to talk to folks like um, the head of the Texas Farmers Union, who really uh, time after time, story after story brought forward the fact that people who work in agriculture want to take care of our land and our water and our air take care of our environment in profound ways, but um, are just their their role, their ability to survive is being swept out from under them. And he said that um, most of the phone calls that he gets nowadays are from farmers who are struggling um, with depression and suicidal thoughts and bankruptcy. And it shouldn't be that way. When farming is this beautiful and productive and necessary component of our worlds, it shouldn't be that folks who invest themselves so heavily into that work can't even get by. Um, and I think that has everything to do with the fact that big agriculture, which has the tendency to not practice uh, regenerative and sustainable methods like smaller agriculture can and more often does, is taking over more and more of our land, buying small farmers out and asking them to do things like rent uh, all of the machinery, rent even the livestock, rent uh, the processing facilities that are necessary to make uh, a, an end product for consumers. When those corporations control the entire supply chain, 
there is very little um, movement for farmers. All that they can do is take on more and more risk and be rewarded with less and less of an income. So our agricultural policy really lays that out. And I think it's important that we talk about this as a country, especially because folks like Trump love to talk about things like agriculture and pretend like they have the scoop on it when when in fact they are they are working for big agriculture explicitly. Yeah, absolutely. This is reminding me of um, uh, last September. I had uh, uh, some friends of ours who run a small farm called PK Pastures on and uh you know, they talked a lot about how, um, yeah, they really box you out as a small farmer and, uh, you know, make it, you know, basically impossible to sustain yourself. Um, it's really interesting. Um, can you tell me uh, a few more things about your campaign, just in general, the big issues that you're running on? Um, why, you know, why DSA and why, uh, you know, run as a Democrat uh, with the DSA endorsement, et cetera? Sure. So um, the campaign was not something I ever expected to be doing. I got asked a whole lot of times to run for something before I would even think about it. But for me, it is that a congressional seat is a place where we get to really weigh in on housing policy. Um, Federal level decision making has a profound effect on local level material gains um, on our healthcare system. I have been organizing around Medicare for all for years and years. I actually got uh, to be part of a campaign to, um, let's say, inspire one of our local representatives to sign on to H.R. 1384 <laughs> after about 19 months of struggle. Um uh, so those issues and then also um, being able to evaluate the the most one of the most deeply felt issues of criminal justice reform that I've been organizing around at a local level. But that has taught me so much about the effects of our national level policies and things like the war on drugs and things like the three strike laws in not just uh, for-profit prisons, but the way the prison system actually breaks up our communities and harms our economies by making people work for, uh, like, not even sweatshop wages, so so little pennies uh, per hour in some situations, and that that is actually harmful to all of us, most importantly, the folks in the system, but, but to our economy and to working-class people as a whole. Um, and then, of course, the national level platform to be able to talk about labor and organizing workers and how we collectively can stand up and fight back and what that actually looks like, what the barrier barriers are in our way right now to be able to do that, um, which ties in heavily for me in the concept of a Green New Deal that when we center universal level policies on things as important as climate change, we need a worker-centered analysis there for a just transition, for um, the creation of tens of millions of new jobs, and to make sure that it's not corporations who at the end of the day find out a way to address climate the climate crisis to their own benefit and leave already affected and marginalized uh, communities out of the benefit of what could potentially be just like a transformative opportunity and transformative system. So uh, I guess that speaks into why uh, running with DSA, right? Um, DSA is my home organizing um, group, though I love to work in coalition with other grassroots organizations in the area and across the state. 
But DSA helps to frame these issues in a way that draws new lines across politics that says, you know, immigration is all of our issue. It's not this bucket over here where either you get conservatives um, fear mongering and and shaming or you get liberals saying just be nice. In fact, immigration reform has a profound effect on all of our lives in the in the fact that immigrants are allowed to be harmed, to not have justice, to be uh, in unsafe working conditions and being uh, being paid less at work. That affects all of us, actually. And so we want to draw a line that that gives that working class analysis and also says. If we don't win it through, um, you know, the regular vehicles of negotiation, we have this power to shut it down. We have the opportunity to stand up together and and really uh, make those who are benefiting from the current system feel the burn um, by using that collective power to to do things like strike and to organize. Another issue that you've been fairly clear and, and sort of explicit about on your website is foreign policy and, uh, in your words, ending Western imperialism. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to the importance of that and how you would distinguish an anti-imperialist platform from, say, a uh, progressive one. Sure. Um, I, I actually think that foreign policy and trade policy are two areas that don't come up enough in Democrat uh, based spaces in progressive type spaces, because we know that the right is really focusing on foreign policy and on trade policy in particular. And I think what sets us apart there is an analysis that we are actually part of a whole, that we are part of not just an economic system, but a global human system um, that involves our interactions with the environment where we have profound effects on one another uh, in our relationships um, internationally. And so acknowledging things like the fact that climate crisis will continue to drive um migration patterns in profound ways that will have an effect on, uh, in our case, in a, a profound effect on Central and South American countries, uh, which will also have a profound effect on our own borders and our own economy and our own way of dealing with immigration. And, and in addition to our role in creating climate crisis, also acknowledging our role in creating unstable economic and political conditions across the world. If we want to um, stave off the kind of corrupt governments that progressives love to rail against. Um, we have to really acknowledge how we have propelled um, openings for those those governments to come into power. And so this is, I mean, it goes back to just uh, taking a look at at our at our role, uh, taking a look at how we can stand in solidarity with regular working class people across the world, not saying that we have to benefit, um, you know, the bottom line of international corporations, but saying we have to benefit working class folks or we're continuing to destabilize. And how do we do that? How do we um, 
how do we make ourselves partners and build diplomacy that is not top down, but actually reaches reaches the people. I think that's the most democratic practice that we could possibly have. And 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 I'm just uh, I really tire of the rhetoric that says, you know, we we can go in and fix the solution rather than saying we can we can work together and we can work with regular folks to build what they want. Mm. Yeah. And speaking of that, that solidarity uh, with oppressed people across the world, do you count yourself as a supporter of the BDS movement? I do. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I have a really uh, I, I have a, a take on this that I, I haven't heard before, but I feel strongly about the fact that okay. um, boycott historical um, tool that has been effective in calling out oppressive regimes across the world. And, and in some cases, it, boycotting has been an effective tool in, in pressuring non-oppressive regimes in, in other situations. So this is like a very common and very um, uh, sort of like First Amendment kind of practice, right? This is, this is what we do. Boycotting is our tool. Um, divestment is is a great tool in the collective. Um, and I think that we can can look back to places like South Africa to understand how profoundly important divestment campaigns leveraging big money or big resources um, to, to make change um, is. And so I, I really uh, support boycotting and divestment in especially places like Israel, where we are seeing those conditions played out once again, those Conditions that I think are appropriately compared to apartheid. Um, sanctions are interesting for me in the fact that I think when we look through history, most sanctions have been um, utilized in a way that did not have as profound of an effect on the powerful, on the really elite and those uh, making the oppressive decisions as one would like. Um, in fact, sanctions tend to have uh, the tend to create an opportunity for for that um, that leverage to trickle down to pe people on the ground who are just trying to get by. And so um, while I think that sanctions can be appropriate, I tend to want to leave them as sort of a last resort, uh, much more in favor of of diplomatic negotiations, of building power, uh, democratic power amongst people groups, of of using our voices and our uh, leverage through um, the B and the D of BDS. Um, so, so yeah, I'm in favor of the boycott divestment sanction campaign, and I am a very strong critic of the Israeli uh, government and its its um, oppression of Palestinian people. Uh, but yeah, I just want to always hold that analysis of how does how do our actions affect folks who are um, struggling uh, across the world. Right. That's important to point out. Uh, would you support uh, conditionalizing or perhaps ending the military aid we now give to Israel? Definitely. So um, on our platform, we call for an end to military aid to uh, Israel until they are, um, you know, and, and I would make this want to make this even more specifically conditional, but until they are. Mm -hmm at least in the negotiation stages and, and in uh, line with commitment to um, bringing, pal bringing, bringing peace with Palestine and negotiations that are representative of Palestinian voices as well to a table towards a solution determined by, um, by the folks who live there. Um, 
and and that's where the the distinction is important because I don't think that calling for an end to humanitarian aid is a, in, uh, an appropriate response in mm. in even in Israel right now because we know that that would just have um, a harmful effect. So I like that distinction between military aid. Um, I don't want to keep mm-hmm. you too long because I know you're. Uh, it's going to be a busy week. Uh, Anders, do you have anything else you want to ask Heidi before I uh, I, I want to end on the thing we talked about before we started recording, and then I think we'll get out of here. Sure. Uh, yeah, I just had a question about how you sort of envision your role in Congress, because uh, right now there is a, a progressive caucus. It's it's fairly large. Uh, it has a lot of good stances, but uh, as we see in some of the membership, uh, treats that treats those stances a little loosely. Um, have you considered? I mean, this is I don't want you to get too ahead of yourself, but if you are elected. Um, thinking about forming an, an, another caucus, perhaps a de- Democratic Socialist caucus that would have a try to uh, exercise power in Congress in a uh, sort of real, uh, real politic way. I uh, don't have any particular plans uh, in front of me at the moment for something like that. Um, as you say, the prog- Progressive Caucus is an interesting space. The, the congressional representative that we persuaded to sign on to Medicare for All is actually a member of the Progressive Caucus. Um, mm. So that's been uh, eye-opening in a lot of situations for me. What I really enjoy as an organizer is exercises in things like power mapping and actually mm. getting the lay of the land, looking at how people are movable, how they vote, and then leveraging an inside-outside strategy. So Mm -hmm. seeing who we need to move to get things done that we absolutely have to get done, things like the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, and then asking folks who are boots on the ground to stand up and to organize and to use their leverage while we leverage from the inside. We want to bring people with us to Congress. That's my yeah. first goal. And then I think uh, after some some power mapping, we would be able to figure out a little bit more what coalition tends to look like. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, that was great. And that was all uh, very informative. And uh, I hope everyone listened to that and ate their vegetables because uh, now I just have to ask you about uh, this thing with the Red Guard in Austin. Uh, please tell me what happened. I'm trying who they are. I'm trying to figure out, you know, basically, <laughs> there's a theory going around that they're police. Um, go ahead and tell my listeners just what happened. Sure. So I have encountered the Red Guards of Austin a lot of times, and and um, it is my understanding that they have multiple front groups and social media and blogs and things. Um, they they tend to be very vocal, um, and I have usually encountered them in spaces where. Either we are organizing on the same side of an issue if there are only two sides or or they are uh, sort of counter organizing to work of groups like DSA. Uh, And I, you know, most of their tactics have been showing up and being loud, a lot of megaphones, trying to be disruptive, but using their voices and using signs and um, taking videos and while that can be annoying, certainly can be annoying, um, it it never felt to me like anything more than just an annoyance. And I really respect protest and, and counter protest. And I think those are good tools. And so not wanting to quash that, but to make sure that we had strategies to like circle up and move on when they tried to disrupt things that we were doing. Um, but uh, a little while ago, I guess like a month ago now, we were having one of our 
big canvases, which are one of like the, I guess, signature things that our campaign does. And, and we've had a series, we're about to have our fifth one, the last one, 180 people showed up this one, a hundred and like 60 people were there. So we're getting ready to go knock doors and they come and disrupt and are yelling and whatever we circle up, we continue with our programming, go out and knock, uh, like 3000 doors together. Um, and think that they are gone and everything is fine and we're moving on. Come back together after the canvas, do a debrief. Somebody says, hey, I want to keep hanging out. Why don't we all or some of us go over to, you know, the, like, this local venue and hang out for a while. Uh, not realizing that they had come back without their signs and their their masks and whatever. Um, and so I get in my car and I rarely am I in places alone, but I happened to park like down the street from the place that I was going uh, and was walking in and legit (laughs) four or five people in masks come out of the alleyway and um, (laughs) block me from going to the venue. So I saw them and I was just like, I don't want to do this. I'm just going to leave. Like, it's fine. Y'all can... (laughs) (laughs) you take this space I was just gonna like hang out with friends for a minute yeah so I walk back to my car and um one of them uh uh, I think it was a a male person um blocked me from getting in my car like I had the door open and he wouldn't let me get in and then the others like circled around me and I just started yelling and uh, telling them to get out of my way and then it got really uncomfortable because they were like touching me. Um, and that's never happened before. And I was by myself. Um, so that went on for a few minutes, just trying to like yell at them enough to get them to leave. Not like they didn't want anything. They just wanted to like intimidate me. Yeah. Intimidate me. Um, and then my, my partner arrives and he walked up and at this point they knew that like there, there was someone else now. And so their time was limited. So, um, the person who was blocking me pushed me and then smashed eggs full of paint on me. Um, and it like got in my car and whatever. Uh, and they like got video of it. And I just come to find out they have been escalating more and more late- lately and have been like following people and also touching other people. So when that behavior started, when that, when it like crossed that line into like, you just put your hands on me. Um, I knew that I had to say something and I didn't like call the police and have this whole big reaction. I just wanted people to know so that they could make choices to be safe. And when we did that, when we started being vocal, so many other people came forward and said, yeah, me too. This is happening across Austin right now, especially to organizers, especially to organizers on the left. So I don't know who these folks are, um, but they're at this point, a nuisance border bordering on like potentially dangerous. Yeah. Well, I, I think you indeed, indeed got the word out cause I heard about it all the way up here in freaking Brooklyn. Um, so hopefully, um, everyone knows what the hell is going on over there with the red guard, or at least everyone knows that, that they are not good. Uh, whatever the hell they're up to. Um, 
Okay, well, I guess I'll have to wait another day to figure out if they are indeed undercover cops. Um, I'll have to go down there. <laughs> Let me know if you figure that out. <laughs> There's a big theory because I think that uh, when like the government shut down at one point, they just also shut down, and it was like, what? You know? <laughs> um, hmm. But I don't know. Who knows? Well, Heidi, thank I- you so much for your time, and um, how can uh, my listeners down there in Austin vote for you? You're going to be um, what part of the ballot? I don't know. Explain it to me. I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, check a box or (laughs) oh man we got these new voting machines they're interesting um yeah so we are running once again in texas 25th district so it'll be uh shortly after you vote for bernie you can vote (laughs) for us this is Um, what i'm worried about i'm worried about people just showing up and just going like bernie and then leaving and you know sometimes people forget to look in a local races and vote down ballot yeah I mean, also, like, we have county attorney, district attorney, judge races going on right now. And these things matter. These matter so much, especially to folks who are, like, justice involved or potentially justice involved individuals. Like, really, like, if you can, look it up, figure out the best um, best person for, for your vote. But y'all do more than vote. Come out. Knock doors with yes. us. Make some, take somebody to the poll with you. Uh, and then keep organizing after this is done, whatever the outcome, we're still going to need you. So keep fighting and, and building community and, and standing up because they're not going to let this, even if Bernie wins, they're not going to let us have these things without a fight. Yeah. And you're, you, everyone also needs to train in uh, karate for the, when the red guard (laughs) soldiers show up, you have to do Ninja Turtle stuff against them. Okay. They wear the the hog masks, right? they um i haven't seen the hog masks they did okay. once cut off the head of a pig and leave it outside oh, the that's what, for us. That's so what that it was, was yeah okay. they were into that's pig heads kosher. all right yeah, well yeah. <laughs> uh heidi thank you so much um i think uh we're good so um yeah uh you're, thanks, fr- you're free to go <laughs> all right thank yeah. you very much good luck thanks andreas nice to talk to y'all yep yep bye bye